When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome uh, to another uh, Q&A episode of Books of the Year. Uh, thrilled to still have Sebastian Foltz with us. I mean, we haven't let him out because he's sitting between Matt and Correct. me, so he can't actually yeah. leave, no. uh, even if he wants to. Uh, Sebastian, what is the last book that you really, really enjoyed reading? The last book I really, really enjoyed reading, I haven't actually finished yet. It's The Life of Charles de Gaulle, the French um, Prime Minister, President, I should say, not Prime Minister. Um, and it's by an English academic called Julian Jackson, and it's called A Certain Idea of France, The Life of Charles de Gaulle. And uh, it moves at a great pace through the early years, and uh, we get through the First World War, and then we see him as a career soldier, and then the fall of France in 1940, when he comes over to London and says, it's not all over, you know, the French government may have given in to the Nazis, but I'm not giving in, and all the free French, we don't, don't let's give in. And it's the most astonishing story, really, of this very awkward, difficult, um, tactless man who took it on himself to be the voice of his own country without any reason to be so. He wasn't elected. Uh, and he fought through the war... Uh, he fought with his allies, he fought with his enemies, he mobilised the Free French to do some fighting in North Africa and various parts of the world. He hated Churchill, Churchill hated him, but they formed a sort of, a kind of alliance. And whenever there were, and he was mediating all the time between incredibly difficult, uh, different pressures that were on him to save the honour of his country and the freedom of his country. And the way that he did it, as far as I can see, is that whenever one of these insoluble problems came to him, he twisted the problem around until the answer could only ever be Charles de Gaulle. And it's the most amazing story of, uh, I wouldn't say he's a particularly lovable man, and he could be very petty and small-minded and uh, repulsive and silly and vindictive, but he had an ego the size of France <laughs> uh, and a sense of destiny the size of the world. And you have to admire him. Uh, so Julian Jackson, A Certain Idea of France. Yeah. Okay. I did just on de Gaulle. Um, most people will, know, will remember his, his involvement as far as the Second World War was concerned. I was listening to a podcast this week which talked about his involvement or his reaction to the, the riots in 68. Mm. And the, a great line that at one point, the, these riots were, people forget, a very big deal in around France, but particularly in Paris. 
and there was talk in his office of we're going to have to get you out of the Senate because your life may be in danger. If they Literally, the hordes could be at the door. And there was talk of them going to Versailles. And he said, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I like the idea of me going to Versailles when we remember what happened to the last lot that ended up at Versailles. A man who has studied history. Yes. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Uh, is there an author that you always read, no matter what they write, no matter what they publish, you will always pick it up? Um of uh, contemporary writers, Alan Hollinghurst's novels, I would always would always read a new one of his. Uh, I read all of Martin Amos's novels until until I couldn't anymore. Until I I felt they he had lost the plot rather. And going back to when I was much younger, Iris Murdoch was someone mm. who I would always read the new new Iris Murdoch. I mean, slightly the same thing happened to her. They became rather rambly, and people were frightened to edit her. But so there's there's three off the top of my head. When was the last time you visited a library? I realise now I'm saying it. That sounds quite accusatory, but <laughs> yes, it's yes. about yeah. yes. Well, tell I, us about libraries. Probably <laughs> when I was picketing the local library to keep it open, and uh, uh, well, I go to the London Library in quite a bit, which um, is in in the middle of London, as the name suggests. But it's a it's a subscription. You have to pay to belong to it which is and it's and it's quite expensive too um i used to go to the public libraries near where i live in london um but the london library just has so much better holding so many more books and when i was young my mother would take me to and my brother to the local library in the town and that was quite good and there was a little van that used to come to our village as well um but i suppose Libraries face a, a difficult time, and I think there have been various reports suggesting they need to become more like social centres and have you know computers and coffee and so on and so forth. But um, I think my, probably the great days of the of the child going in and being able to read and read and read for free, well, they're still there, aren't they? Mm. But in, in, under threat. If you were to go back to university, Sebastian, mm. what would you what would and you had free reign on what you could study? What would you go for? Uh, genetics. No, I wouldn't. I, <laughs> I wasn't very good at science. I only did one year of science at school. Um, I suppose I would probably, I did read English, uh, which I'm not sure was a very good use of my time or anyone's time. Uh, I would probably read history uh, or failing that archaeology and anthropology. One of those two. What particularly draws you to which of those? What History, well, I was put off history because it just seemed too big, really, and I was a bit lazy. Well, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you just focus on, you know, historians really, they only focus on a short period. And so I would have done, I think, um, 20th century France would be would have been my uh, period. Um, that's, you know, endlessly fascinating to me. And Arcananth, um, you know, actually at the time I was a student, a bit dusty, nothing much was happening, but so much is happening now. We're finding new new human species and human remains and archaeological digs all the time. And I'm sorry to say that global warming will probably um, reveal a few things too. I mean, I think there's some dispute about the permafrost, how you know, when it was formed and whether the, the things will it will reveal when it melts will be how old they will be. But I'm sure there will be some things, apart from the viruses, of course, which it releases. Um, what is the best piece of advice? I'm assuming that there is some, but assuming that there is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given by a fellow author? Um, the best piece of advice I've ever been given by a fellow author. Um, the worst piece of advice That'll I've do. ever yeah, been given... Better. 
is write about what you know. Correct. Um, correct. So the best piece of advice, I was never given this, but I'm offering it free to any aspiring authors listening in, write about what you don't know. That would be my um, advice to you. And then if they say, but how do I know them? We say, well, find out. Ring up, read stuff. Then you can, it'll set your mind free, but don't write about what you do know because it won't be interesting. So so just before Matt comes in with a question, so are you looking, so when you're planning a, a new book, mm -hmm. are you looking for something that is like, there's a little tug inside you thinking, oh, that, that, I wonder. I don't know anything. Yes. Is, is it like a physical reaction or is it a... I want to find out. I want to find out. Yes. I mean, and you know, you never know where it's coming from. Uh, I can remember and often the sort of entry point, which is the little tug, as you say, the exciting moment when there's a flame ignites like on a gas burner. Maybe in the end, in the book itself, it isn't included, but it's it's the, it's the ignition moment which um, says, I, I need to go to this place. I need to find out what life was like then and then see how that kind of person's mind works and then put them together. Um, so... I, I want to write a book that is the completion of a so-called Austrian trilogy, which is Human Traces, Snow Country, and something else, which I will be, I hope, the next book I write. But I I just had an idea from something somebody said the other day that it could be set in California in the 1960s. And there were a lot of Austrian and German, well, East, East European exiles anyway, who left in the wartime years. And if one of their kids could take it on, and it wouldn't be set all the time in Austria, though they'd have to go back there at some point. But suddenly that idea of arriving from one continent into another and finding something so utterly different, but then thematically deep down, it would all be about similar things, you know. You're going to have to go to California, aren't you? I mean, just well, my son wants purposes. to come. Yeah, my son, my son wants to, me to employ him as, as research Of course assistants. he does. <laughs> Do you always finish a book once you've started reading it? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I think it's uh, it's a hundred pages. Mm. If it hasn't got you after a hundred pages, um, I think it's okay to to stop then. And you know, a lot of books you can just tell from the author's tone of voice and the way they write sentences. It's not really going to work for me. Um, it's normally I can tell within a page if I'm going to get on with something. Um, One page. Yeah, yeah. by the sentence, really. <laughs> I'm saying a page to make it sound like you give it a fair. But you can tell within a sentence whether someone can write. I always think when people say 100 pages, I think you're being far too generous. I, I yeah. can't, like you, I will make a decision very, very early. Well, I was told that by John Mullen, who's a professor at um, University College London, and we were talking about, he said 100 pages is that's fair but then you know he's an academic he has to read that much but i, I i've tried to stick with that and uh, i think that's about right i used to have 100 pages and it was entirely due to the fact that the uh, when the perfect storm came out i uh, i thought that looks interesting and i read it and i got read about 90 pages and really wasn't getting on with it and then it completely took off film rights were bought and i thought okay it's clearly my thought mm. i went back to the book and it did take off and it took out about page 95 96 yeah. and we were off no, well, the same uh, I found, uh, quite a lot of people found with Captain Corelli's Mandolin, actually. You got to page 80 and you thought, oh, and hundreds coming up. And then you, and then about it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's almost, you can tell which page it is. I think it's halfway down page 85. You're saying, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Okay, I'm in, I'm in. And it's just as well, because it's a wonderful it's, novel. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favourite place to write? Uh, I did, which was, I had this little studio um, on the top of a house about uh, 15 minutes walk from where we live. Uh, where I wrote happily for about 15 years. 
But um, my wife persuaded me to give it to our daughter as a sort of little flat to live in. So now I have to sort of dodge around at home with a laptop between the dog and the cleaner and, you know, it's not so good. So you're quite angry about it. <laughs> I'm trying to sort of mask it, but you can sense a sort of seething irritation. <laughs> um, given uh, the book that we were discussing on the separate podcast is set mostly or set entirely in the future, a lot of your books set in the past. If you could time travel, which way are you going? Are you going forwards or backwards? I definitely go backwards. I think we know what the forward's going to be like. It's going to be like now, only hotter and people being more and more angry and less and less well-informed. The past, I would love to be, uh, love to live in London in the early years of the 19th century, the sort of Regency period, Um, you know, finally got, you know, reasonably civilized, reasonably comfortable, um, but, you know, great explosion of the romantic poets, Jane Austen, you know, lots of literature and Lord Liverpool was a nasty piece of work i mean we before lord liverpool or after i'm not going to hang out with him Uh, (laughs) i'm I'm hanging out with um, the cool kids with keats wordsworth (laughs) keats jane austen and so on uh otherwise i I wouldn't mind living in sort of uh, medieval england sort of sort of thomas tallis kind of time sort of 14th 13th century but of course all these things you have had to have had money I mean, it'd be one thing to be, you know, have a nice little castle with lots of wolfhounds and uh, <laughs> sheepskins to keep you warm, but you wouldn't want to be a sort of poor peasant in a hut being exploited by the baron, would you? But I think that, but it would be interesting. I think England was really England then and a different place and pretty interesting, though hard. Uh, Sebastian, thank you very much indeed for joining us. The Seventh Son uh, is uh, Sebastian's new book, which you can hear him talking about uh, on our other podcast, is published by. Hutchinson Heinemann, and is, I don't know whether there's any point in saying who it's published by anyone. Does anyone who's I mean, searching by the publisher? No one know. is searching by publisher, are they? They're well, they're going to be very happy to get their name mentioned. So we should probably in leave which it case, in. Yeah. in which case, in which case, Hutchinson Heinemann, all the nice people <laughs> yeah. uh, who are working very hard uh, yeah. uh, there, and it's out now. Uh, I hope you can join us next week, uh, Sebastian. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.